Isaiah chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter number 9. We're starting a new series for the next four weeks out of the book of Isaiah. Light has come, and we're going to see... Now think about this with me this morning. 700 years before Christ came, Isaiah prophesied about what would take place 700 years later. Now think with me how amazing that is, that what Isaiah prophesied came true 700 years later. Think back with me 700 years ago from now. Think the year 1320. It's a long time ago, and a real long time ago. And none of you look old enough to have been around around that time. Bridget, kind of close, but not quite. And so, no, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. I'm teasing, Bridget. You know I love you. You know I love you. And so, but imagine in 1320, I know John Wycliffe was around in 1320. I wonder if he would have, um, if he would have said in the year 2020, there's going to be a coronavirus. And on May 18th, California is going to start a stay-at-home order. People would have been like, first off, 700, what's California? The land was here, but it wasn't called California in 1320. And how coronavirus people stay at home, they wouldn't have understood it 700 years ago. So think about that when we think about the fact that Isaiah prophesied 700 years before it takes place. And so this is going back about 2,700 years ago. Isaiah prophesied this. And you're going to see this morning is going to be a brief history lesson and a foundation for the next three weeks. And so how many of you, let's be honest this morning, how many of you don't like history, and history bores you a little bit? Would you raise your hand, anybody? Art, I knew the Bronco fan would say that. And the Bronco fan where there's, think about this, the Broncos today are playing with no quarterback because they all were around one quarterback that had the virus, so no quarterback today. So they're probably going to play better than they played all year long today, Art. So, so you got some hope today, but that, that yellow, that orange you're wearing today, it's like prison orange back there. But anyways, we'll leave that alone. I'm going any further with that. The world, when Isaiah was writing this, was a very dark, awful place. We live in a very dark world today. But we look at this passage, and we're going to look at chapter number 9, verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to go back and look at several things. Verse number 1 says, nevertheless. Now, when the word nevertheless is mentioned, it means you must look before that. But we're not going to do that yet. Sometimes what happens in the Bible is, We get too caught off by verses, by chapters and verses. Chapter 9, verse 1, like it says there, which I'm very grateful for, because if there weren't chapters and verses, if I would say turn to Isaiah 9, 1, or turn to Isaiah and look for this verse, there's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. It would be hard to find it. But one of the things I want you to know is the fact that chapters and verses were added later on. And so they were not originally there. And so... We'll let our guests come on in this morning. And so, are these your guests, Joyce? All right. And so we'll give them a set. You guys are fine. Just come on in. No, no, don't worry about it. No problem whatsoever. So I'll let you come on in, and we're glad that you're here this morning. And so, can we get your names? Or Joyce, you want to introduce them? Okay. You want to introduce your family to us? That's great. We're glad that you're here. Thank you so much for coming today. And so that's great. 
And so we are in the book of Isaiah this morning. We're just getting to the message. So you guys came at the perfect time. Got to miss all the formal beginning, and we're here for this. And so Isaiah chapter number 9, we look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. Now, verse number two is our key verse this morning. It says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. So we look at these verses here, and the Bible tells us that there was dimness, there was darkness in the land, and that the people that walked in that darkness we're going to see a great light. Now, that light that it's talking about here is talking about the light that was coming 700 years later. But in Isaiah's prophecy here, he makes it sound like it's present right there. And so as we look at this this morning, you say, why did they need a great light? Well, we saw the first word, right, of chapter number 9. It said, nevertheless. Now, as I mentioned, I didn't finish mentioning to you, they added in the 4th century, 5th century, they added the verses and chapters. So like it says, chapter 9, verse 1, when Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah, there was no Isaiah 9-1. It was one long prophecy. So sometimes we get stuck and we think, okay, chapter 9, because like you read a good book, the next chapter kind of separates itself from the chapter before. But sometimes the Bible doesn't always do that. So when we see verse number one where it says, nevertheless, it's telling us, it's talking about what had happened the verse prior. So look at chapter 8, verse 22. The Bible tells us, and they shall look upon the earth and behold trouble and and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. And they say, what is all this talking about? This is what God sees from heaven. The earth is full of trouble, it's full of darkness, dimness of anguish, and because of that, they're going to be driven into further darkness. Let's have a word of prayer. We'll dive into this passage this morning and talk about the light that came in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time that we have in your word, and we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Pray that you would help us this morning as we're here in the book of Isaiah. Help this passage as we look at it today, help it and help it minister to our hearts. And we need you. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I got to give you a brief history lesson. So if history bores you, just hold on. We'll get back to the message here in just a minute. In Genesis chapter number 12, God decided to, find a, to fi- found a nation on a man named Abraham. Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau Esau was the oldest, but Jacob's the one who got the blessing from God. God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and Israel had 12 sons, hence we get the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel, they got to go into the promised land over time. It took a lot of time. I'm skipping a lot of history to get to the promised land. And when they settled into the promised land, and the promised land, you picture the promised land, I picture California without all the political stuff in Sacramento. That's the promised land to me and the taxes. I'm just teasing when I say all of that. But 
What you had inside of the promised land area, you had the southern part, and you had Benjamin and Judah dwelt in the southern part. And so they became known in Jerusalem area. You had Benjamin and you had Judah. The other 10 tribes of Israel went around the northern part of the kingdom, and that's where they settled. And so for the first part of the kingdom, everything went pretty well. You know, Saul was, we see that God rejected him as king, and God raised up David, and David was a great king in Israel. And he did great things, and Israel was united, all the 12 tribes. David's son, Solomon, became king. And Solomon, the kingdom thrived even more. And the Bible tells us that Solomon was the wisest man born among women. He was a wise man. And the kingdom flourished under Solomon. But Solomon, towards the end of his reign, his heart got turned away from God. And he, he married a crazy amount of women. With, between his concubines and wives, over 700? I can barely handle one. I don't know what I'd do with 700. I don't know how you do that. And you call Solomon wise. I don't know how wise that is to have 700. And I love my one. I wouldn't want any others. Just make sure you understand that. But 700, that's, that's quite a... But they turned his heart away from God. His son, Rehoboam, became king. And we'll just say, instead of following some advice that he was given, he decided to do it his way. And he ended up charging higher taxes, and the kingdom split in two. So you had Judah which would be there in Jerusalem. You had Judah and you had Israel. So you had the kingdom of Ju- so the children of Israel and Judah. Those are the two that were separated into. The southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, I mean, sorry, of, uh, you have Judah and Benjamin make up Judah. And then you had the 10 tribes of the north made up Israel. They split off and there was great division between the two. It didn't take long for those northern tribes. The northern tribes had a lot of people surrounding them. And what happened was, it was very easy for the people of Damascus in those areas to infiltrate into the northern kingdom. So as they infiltrated into the northern kingdom, what happened was, they'd stopped worshiping the God of heaven very quickly, and the northern tribes of Israel started worshiping other gods very quick into things. They worshiped idols. They became increasingly depraved, and eventually what they did, this is very interesting, the northern kingdom, the, Israel made an alliance with Syria so that Syria could attack Judah. That's what's going on as this was written. So as this is written, Judah is getting ready to be attacked from Syria. And so chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Isaiah here, Isaiah prophesies and lets Judah know that God's judgment is coming on the north first. And so the northern tribes are going to be taken captive by Assyria, the ones they make an alliance with. And so, and as you know, as the story goes, Assyria conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And then, so many years later, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah and Jerusalem. But that was later on in line. So right now, as we're reading this, Isaiah is prophesying and talking to Judah and telling them, there's a lot of darkness around you. A lot of things are not very good. He talks about the things that are going to happen. you got to think about the people were afraid, and God raised up Isaiah to bring the people hope in the midst of what was going on. And also Isaiah predicted that the northern kingdom would be destroyed by Assyria, and all this happened, and the northern tribes became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. The northern part of Israel was filled with darkness 
despair, and distress. They're destroyed. It's a mess. That's the history behind where we're at in this passage today. But as we look at this, it also describes the human race. The human race from Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, when Adam ate the fruit and Eve ate the fruit, sin entered into the picture, and the relationship between God and man had been separated. And so man became depraved, dark. All these things we talk about northern Israel really is the state of mankind. And the Bible says, and they shall look upon the earth and behold trouble and darkness, verse 22 of chapter 8, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. The word trouble there, where it says, behold, trouble, trouble means extreme affliction and discomfort. It says dimness of anguish. The word anguish there, it means restriction. It was used of water turning into ice, which was a metaphor for their frozen faith. And as a result of their sin, you see the trouble, darkness, the dimness of anguish, God was going to drive them into further darkness. The word dry there means to thrust. It was going to get even worse for them. And the Bible explains it to us in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15. That day, talking about that day, is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Because of their unbelief and because of their depravity, They were thrust into unquenchable darkness. Isn't that what happens with sin? As we look at, you think about life without Christ. Without Christ, we're headed towards hell, the Bible tells us. That's darkness. And so this passage of Scripture not only applied to Israel in that day, it applies to the entire human race, but it also applied to the day in Israel's life when Christ came. You see, the book of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, there's 400 years where God does not speak to mankind. His last words were given in the book of Malachi, 400 years. You think about in Israel's history, God had spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Isaac. He spoke to Jacob. He spoke to Joseph. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to the different tribes to Saul, to David, to Solomon, to um, Elijah and Elisha, and all down that line, all the prophets. 400 years, nothing from God. The world had changed so much in that time. The world went under Roman rule. The Romans were not very good people. We'll put it that way, okay? They hated anything to do with the Jews and Christianity and all those things. It was a dark day. So not only does this passage apply to the present time in Israel as we read it, 700 years before Christ, it applies to the time when Christ came, and it applies to all of us today and where we are. So this applies all the way along. You look at our world today. Do I need to talk about how dark things are around us today? When people, you know, are breaking into buildings and stealing things and looting and doing those things, that's the depravity of man. You turn on the news and you hear about the people get, just the other day, there was, didn't someone get shot in Sacramento yesterday in a mall? We hear all these different things. It's the depravity of man. We live in a dark day. 
And, it, and sin, that's how sin is. That's what happens with sin. And so this passage before our eyes this morning helps us in so many ways. So the Lord looked down, the Lord saw this, and look at what verse number 1 of chapter 9 tells us. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be as such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shine. My main idea this morning, my main theme this morning is that Jesus lights the way for those that walk in darkness. I want to give you two points about that this morning, and we'll be on our way. Don't get too comfortable and think the two points are going to go by super quick. It's only 1037, so you're going to be here a little bit longer. Just relax a little bit longer. But number one this morning, we see that Jesus moves us from great gloom to glorious gladness. Jesus moves us, and the theme for Christmas is all about Christ, right? That's what it should be. Our world focuses on so many different things during this time of year when the focus should be that there was a baby that was born. He became flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Christmas is all about the birth of Christ. And people have made about so many other things. And I know I hear people all the time, well, pastor, Jesus wasn't born in December. You're probably right. If, if I were to tell you the month he, he was probably born in April or May-ish time is when he was really born. The fact is we know that he came, and then you have people say, well, pastor, Christmas is a pagan holiday, and I refuse to celebrate it. You do you, okay? And if that's how you feel, that's fine. You do whatever the Lord leads you to do. Say, Pastor, I wouldn't have a Christmas tree anywhere. Oh, I'm sorry, we got a couple in here. We're not worshiping the tree, okay? People take, there are verses in the Bible. Now, if you want to, people take a verse in the Bible that talks about wood and things, and that's why they say they won't have a Christmas tree. But I'll only carry this a little bit further. If you want to take that verse in biblical context, then you better not build your house out of wood that you live in either. So if you are taking it that far because it goes that far, and so you say, well, that, I, I do that, that's fine. You do what you need to do. I'm not going to be offended by it. And if you invite me over to your house, I'm not bringing you a Christmas tree, okay? If you come to my house, I might have a Christmas tree there, and you'll just have to deal with it for a little bit of time. We'll live, and everything will be all right, and we can just move forward with it, and it's all good. But the main thought this morning is that Jesus lights the way for those living in darkness and I said, number one, that Jesus moves us from great gloom to glorious gladness. In the midst of grief, in the midst of gloom, Isaiah gives the people a message of hope and of grace. And we see that in verse number one, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be as was in her vexation. When at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. Now, it's very interesting. That phrase, her vexation, has to do with the idea of the curse that was put on them or the punishment. So why did God punish them? We'll go back to verse 22 of chapter number 8. It says that they shall look upon the earth and behold, God saw the trouble and darkness and the dimness of anguish. And because of that, they were driven further into darkness. 
So what had taken place was a result of their sin. It had driven them further away. And so because of their vexation, that's why this took place. Now we talk about, go back to chapter 9, verse number 1. You see two of the tribes of Israel mentioned here. Now, am I, have I lost anybody this morning? Are you still with me? Anybody eat too much turkey the other day and you're kind of tired on me? We're, we're getting somewhere, okay? You see two tribes of Israel mentioned here. Zebulun and Naphtali are the two that are mentioned in this verse. Zebulun and Naphtali are two tribes that were in the northern part. Remember we said the southern part had Benjamin and Judah. But Naphtali and um, Zebulun were the two most northern tribes of Israel in the land. The territory of Zebulun, and it's interesting, you take Zebulun and Naphtali, the land that they make up would have been the land of Galilee. So you'll think about Galilee, you think of Jesus in Galilee. We'll get there in a minute and see how that all ties into this. And so, but what we see happen is, we see that the territory of Zebulun, we'll talk about them first here for a minute, it was located on one of the major trade routes of the day. Now, you know, back in Bible days, they don't have highways and freeways like we do. You know, his family over here living in Arizona, I'm sure, did he come over on the 10 or the 8? The 10? The 8. Okay, so you live more of the southern part of Arizona, or you just like going that way? Okay. And so, but you can get on a freeway, and you can find your way almost anywhere around the United States. It wasn't so back in Bible days. They had specific trade routes where they would bring merchandise and things, and, you know, the camels or whatever they traveled on, there were certain trade routes. So in Zebulon, they went through, that area they went through because that was a major trade route. And so when you think about that, what happened was it was easy for people to come in and battle them. They're the northernmost tribe and all these things. And then you had the tribe of, you think about the tribe of Naphtali, they were very close to Syria. And the Syrians, so if I should have put a map up for you, which would have made it very clear. So basically, you picture Naphtali and Zebulun, you picture them up here. And so you have above Naphtali, you have Syria, and they're the ones who come in and invade them. So they're real close to one another. And then you have the fact that um, Zebulun is a major trade route. These cities were easy to get into. So when the attack came, they were the first two tribes to be destroyed. And then they infiltrated from there. And so, and then the Bible also tells us here, do you see the verse, verse number one there where it says, and did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea? That was, the way of the sea was an international highway that they used that went from the, from the Mesopotamia, the river, and it went down to Egypt. So it was a major road. So because of those things, these two tribes got easily attacked. That's my whole point of that. And so, when we think about that, for many years, these people knew only darkness and despair because of their depravity, and God tried. Because of where they were, God tried over and over again. God sent them prophets. Hey, Zebulun, Naphtali, Israel, the other tribes, return to me. I'll love you. I'll accept you. Repent, turn back to me, and move forward. But they didn't do it. And so God had to punish the 10 tribes of Israel. And these tribes were punished, and because they were the furthest north, they were the first to be punished by God. In the midst of all this mess, Isaiah brings a message of future hope and healing. A time is coming when great gloom will be replaced with glorious gladness into our mess. You think in Galilee, 
I think of the word Christmas. People say lots of different things with it. You know, Christ Mass, I've heard. Christ, keep Christ in Christmas. When I think of Christmas, I like to word it this way to myself. Christ mess. Christ came into our mess, which is literally what he did. That's what Christmas is all about. Think about this. Christ came. His birth was in the middle of great despair and deep anguish for the people of Israel. Remember the angels cried out, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men? There was no peace on earth. In fact, all the babies were going to be murdered by Herod right at that time. So as Mary is worshiping God and thanking him for what he's doing, there are other mothers that are weeping at the same time. But may I just remind you that Christmas joy and the joy of Christ is best understood when the junk of life is all around us. Gladness comes after grieving. That's the way it works. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy, the Bible says. So we see, number one, this morning that Jesus moves us from great gloom to glorious gladness. And number two, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, Jesus moves us from deep darkness to the light of life. Jesus moves us from deep darkness to the light of life. See, verse number two, and I mentioned this, it speaks as if it's already happened, but it hadn't happened for 700 years. But this is what you say, well, why is Isaiah prophesying this way? Because he's just letting them know it's going to happen. It's going to be this way. This is how it's going to happen. And we see the Bible tells us and how the birth of Christ will bring brightness to a world of darkness. Verse 2 there says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. The idea behind that phrase, walked in darkness, is someone stumbling as they go. My parents... My, their bedroom, my parents love it to be pitch black for them to sleep. If it's not, you literally could walk in their bedroom in the middle of the day and think it's midnight. And my mom with her health and different things, they sleep odd hours at times. So I had them call a couple days ago. I think my dad called, or my mom, one of them, and they said, good morning. And it's 6 o'clock at night. So it's 6 o'clock at night. Oh, yeah, we got our hours off. Because it's so dark in their room, it keeps the light out. A few months ago, my mom um, fell off her bed and fractured um, um, some of her vertebrae, or compressed, compressed fracture, a couple of vertebrae. So we had to put a hospital bed in her room for a little bit till she got a little bit better. So we had to move everything around the room. Well, the next day, my dad called, and I'm talking to him. He's like, yeah, I tripped last night and fell on the floor. And... You know, my dad just turned 79 a couple days ago. He takes care of my mom. They're getting too, too old to be falling all over the place. And like my, I said, Dad, why did you? Well, everything's moved around, so things were in my way. I said, Dad, did you turn on the light? Well, no, I didn't want to wake your mom up. So he tripped because the lights were out. And that's what this is talking about. The people that walk in darkness, and that's literally without Christ what we do. We trip on things as we go through this life because we can't see where we're going because we're walking and stumbling around in darkness. Now, this is the crazy thing. My parents have a fan in their room with a remote that turns the light on. Literally on his nightstand right next to his bed, there's a light he can turn on. That's all it would have taken so he wouldn't fall down. I hope he's not watching me this morning as I say this. 
If you are dead, I love you, but heed the message. Turn on the light when you get up. Make sure you turn on the light. But if he would have turned on that light, he wouldn't fall. Well, the Bible says here, the people walk in darkness, and the Lord looked down on mankind, and God sees mankind tripping over themselves, and tripping over themselves, and tripping over them, because they can't see where they're going, because the depravity and the sin that is found inside of us. When this is talked about and walked in darkness, as I mentioned, it's someone stumbling as they come and go. Bible tells us in Proverbs 4, verse number 19, the way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. You see how the Bible portrays that there. They know not what they stumble. Jeremiah 23, 12 shows the dangers of walking in darkness. It tells us, wherefore their way shall be unto them as slippery ways in the darkness. They shall be driven on and fallen therein, for I will bring evil upon them even the year of their visitation, saith the Lord. And so these people were walking in darkness, and God was going to bring them light. Think about this. All that my dad needed was dark in the room, and all he needed was light. Mankind was walking in darkness, and God said, I'll bring you light. That's Jesus. A dark world needs some light. It's Jesus Christ. That's what he did when he saved you. We think about Saul. Remember, Saul was on Damascus Road. He was going, and isn't that funny? He was on Damascus Road. He was, on that, he was going up that way that we're just talking about right now on one of those routes. As he went, the Lord stopped him. And remember, he saw a great light, and he was blinded from it. He turned from being Saul to being Paul, and he repented and turned to the Lord. He saw the light. Many of you that have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been taken from darkness and brought to light. And thank God for that this morning. But Jesus came, and he brought light for those living in darkness. That's why he came. Something that's very interesting, what I want to cover for the last little bit of time is, and I want to tie it all together, and we're going to bring it, like I said, this week, week number one, is more information than preaching. Next week and the following three weeks will be more preaching than information. But Jesus, as he started his earthly ministry, revisited this prophecy of Isaiah in Matthew chapter number four. And you got the notes there, and they'll be up on the screen. But in Matthew chapter number four, Jesus Look at what it says, verse number 12. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, you know John, John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the forerunner for Christ. He preached about the kingdom, and his time had come to be done. And when he was cast into prison, look at what it says. He, Jesus, departed into where? Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Look at the next verse there, it says which is upon the seacoast. Now look at where Jesus went. In the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, 700, Jesus is about 30 years old when his ministry starts. So about 730 years time has passed. And Jesus is fulfilling what we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 1 and 2. Now, when you look at that, and 
it kind of gives me spiritual goosebumps. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced those, but it does. The Bible tells us that he would go back up to the beginning of that verse for me, Joe, verse 12. It says that he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Nazareth is where Jesus was born. And think about this with me. Zebulun, their tribe, was located in Nazareth. So Jesus was born there. And then Capernaum, which would end up being the headquarters for Jesus' ministry here on earth, was in the land of Nathalie. So it's a direct prophecy being fulfilled from Isaiah chapter 9. So remember how he said that great light would come? And he mentioned Nathalie and Zebulun? Well, Jesus was born in Nazareth, and he starts his ministry in Capernaum. It was a direct fulfillment of the prophecy that was made in this passage. You'll see the next verse. So go to the next one. And so it says, that might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, now go to verse 15. The land of Zebulun and the land of Nathalem, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And so we see, something that's interesting, do you see how it says Galilee of the Gentiles? The people, the Jews in Jesus' day, did not like those who lived in this area. They thought that they were half-breeds. They weren't as good. They were very, and in all honesty, they were pretty, the Jews were pretty prejudiced people, if we're being honest about it. They were. They didn't, the Samaritans and others, they, were, they called them dogs even. They didn't want anything to do with them. But do you see how Jesus, he came not only for the Jews, but he came for the Gentiles as well. And aren't you thankful for that today? And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, if you're not a Jew in this room this morning, you are a Gentile. And Jesus didn't, and we think about, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I thank God for that. And he's the God of the Jews, but he's the God of the world. He didn't just come for the Jews, he came for all mankind. And I'm so thankful for that today, and that's what that's telling us there. And when we think about this, the Jews did not like this area of Galilee, Nazareth. They didn't think anything good could come from there. In fact, one of Jesus' eventual disciples, listen to what he had to say. In uh, John 1, 46, Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I love Philip's answer. Hey, just come and see. Just come and see. Man, today, that's what people need. You need to proclaim how good Christ is. And you need to tell people, hey, just come see. Come see. Come see him. Come experience him. But Nathaniel's response is, I don't think anything good could come from there. And in fact, we go even further in John 7, 41. They said, shall Christ, shall the anointed, the word Christ anointed, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Why would the Messiah come out of Galilee? And then they answered their own question in verse 52 of that same chapter. Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. They didn't believe it, and they didn't want to believe that he would come. But may I just remind you this morning that the Messiah had to come out of Nazareth to fulfill the prophecy that was given. And then we see, and I know I've had you in a lot of verses, and I know I've given you a lot of things to think on this morning, but Matthew 4, verse 16, the Bible tells us, and this is continuing on where Jesus was speaking, and he talked about the prophecy, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, 
and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Do you know there's a different wording between Isaiah chapter number 9 and Matthew 4 here? Do you know what it tells us in the book of Isaiah that they walked in darkness? Matthew here tells us that they sat in darkness. So think about this. Eventually, the people who walk in darkness dwell in darkness. That's the way it works. You want a good example of that? Think of Lot. Remember how Abraham and Lot, their herdsmen, feuded with each other? And Lot saw the well-watered plains towards Sodom, so he, the Bible says he pitched his tent near Sodom. Lot was not in Sodom. He was near it. But when we come to when God sends the angels to get Lot and his family away from there, where was Lot? In the middle of it. You walk in darkness, you're going to sit in it, and you're going to dwell in it. That's the way that it works. And the Bible makes that clear. And as we look at this, and we think about the Bible tells us in Psalm 107, verse 10 and 11, such as sit in darkness in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and condemned the counsel of the Most High. When you think about darkness, walking in darkness, sitting in darkness, darkness in the Bible is often a sign of God's divine judgment. Do you remember the plagues in Egypt? Remember the plague of darkness? And the Bible says that it was so strong, the darkness, you could feel the darkness. I've been in a few dark places, but I don't know that I've ever felt darkness, really. There's this cave maybe one time, it was the closest I've ever been to feeling darkness. But well, the Bible says that, the, that, that you could feel darkness in, in Egypt. And think about when Jesus died on the cross. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From noon to three in the afternoon, it was completely dark when Jesus died on the cross. Something that's very interesting you could go and look at the history of different cities and look at their history. You could go to Egypt and look in their history books, and they record a day that the earth was dark at noon. You could go into Rome and do the same exact same thing. There was a day on earth when everything was dark from noon on. It's when Jesus died on the cross. And when we think about this, get this with me, and we're just about done. When Jesus came to earth, the Bible tells us that wise men came, right? How did the wise men know where Jesus was? There was a great light that showed them where to go. At the birth of Christ, the light shined in darkness. At his death, darkness showed over the light. What I'm saying is, and as we get to the end of the message here, is this. Jesus came and he brought light. This world is a dark place. And judgment's coming on this world at some point. In Israel's day, they were going through a lot of things, but light came. Do you know how you get rid of darkness? Light. Do you know if we're if we're honest this morning, do you know there really is no such thing as darkness? 
There really isn't. You say, Pastor, you're losing me. Darkness is the absence of light. Just like there's really not cold, it's an absence of heat. Mankind made a choice to reject God in the Garden of Eden. And man decided to live in sin. And that sin has darkened and messed up the entire world. But Jesus came to bring light. So that you and I didn't have to trip and stumble over our steps anymore in the dark. God says, I'll bring you some light so you can see. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what Christmas is all about. God bringing light from darkness. The Bible tells us in John 3, verse number 19, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And if we were to look at the last verse of Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, what Jesus said after he told them that he came to fulfill that prophecy, look at what it says, from that time, when John was put in prison, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is the great light that Isaiah was prophesying about. It's common for people in our world today to believe that all religions are basically the same. I hear that a lot. I'm not here to burst anyone's bubble. I'm not here to offend anybody or anything like that. But all religions are not the same. There's a man that had a conversation. David Platt describes a conversation he had with people who followed different religions. And he spoke up and he said this to them. It's almost like you guys picture God at the top of a mountain and we're at the bottom. And you say, I'll take this path and you go up your path. You go this way and eventually we all end up at the same place. They smiled at him and said, exactly, you understand. So then Platt then said, what if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to find our way to him, but he actually came down to where we are. They responded, that would be great. To which he replied, this is the difference. What we find in the Bible is the story of a God who has not left us alone to try and find our way to him, but he has come to us and he has made the way to us through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could get to him. God came down, heaven came down, and glory filled our soul. A boy heard in Sunday school that Jesus was the lie of the world, and after class he went up to his teacher and said, if Jesus really is the lie of the world, I wish he'd come hang out at my house. It's awfully dark where I live. Is it dark where you live this morning? Are you stumbling around in darkness? Are you tired of living in darkness? You need Christ. But may I also put another plug, and this wasn't much in my message this morning. There are way too many Christians that are stumbling in darkness. You're not a child of darkness. You're a child of light. So walk in the light. Isn't that what 1 John tells us? Hey, Christian, quit stumbling along the Christian life. Get away from the darkness and be in the light. Walk as children of the light. Greater is he that's in you 
than he that's in this world. Stop stumbling and stumbling and stumbling and start walking with the light on as a Christian. You have the light, so walk with it. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't have the light of the gospel. Today could be that day for you. Jesus made an offer to everyone in John 12, verse 46. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If you're tired of dwelling in the darkness, it's time to believe in Jesus and that he died in your place and receive him into your life. Aren't you thankful he came? Man, don't ever forget, he came into our mess. He didn't create this mess, we all did. And yet he came to fix the mess. You know, one of the things I see it often with my wife, we have four kids, a nine-year-old, eight-year-old, seven-year-old, and a, or six-year-old, and a three-year-old. And Caroline does a great job at trying to keep the house clean. She does. But having a three-year-old and keeping a house clean just doesn't mix too well. And even that, having a nine, eight, and six-year-old doesn't really help. Just, the, just last night, I get home, and I've been doing some things, and Caroline had cleaned up the house and had cleaned up lots of things downstairs, and I go over by the staircase, and our three-year-old's there with a board game that's everywhere. She cleans one area, and he messes up another. That's how God does it. We mess things up, and he comes and cleans it up and shines some light. That's why he loves you today. And that passage of Scripture was to bring hope the people of Israel, yeah, there's darkness, there's despair, but there's another day coming, and the light is coming, and the light was Jesus Christ. And today, church, you don't have to wait. The light's here. What this world needs today is the light of Christ. It could fix so many of our problems. So many people, their hope is in the White House, in Sacramento, and so many other places. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. We need the light. Father, I thank you for the time we've had this morning in your word.